The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Okay, let's stand and uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4 in our Bibles. And if you don't have uh, a Bible with you, you can use the one just in front of you uh, in the seat below, uh, below the seat. And it's the Black Bible. You can turn to page 923. And Philippians chapter 4, and we're reading 1 through 9, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord, to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Delta is Jonathan continues on his sabbatical. Um, Brady needs no introduction, but uh, I'm going to introduce him anyway. This is Brady Reader, um, a dear brother, a dear friend. He's going to preach um, this morning from the book of Philippians, of course, and i um, going to pray for you. We look forward to hearing from you. Father, thank you for Brady. Thank you for his desire to preach your word faithfully and boldly. I pray that you would empower him for service this morning. Lord, as hearers of your word, I pray that we would hear your word, we would apply it to our lives, and Lord, you would change our hearts continually to make us more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, Delta. It's good to see all of you this morning. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We are thrilled to uh, have you here with us this morning. Uh, For those of you who are here last week, Brother Matt Hess did a great job uh, walking us through the end of chapter 3 in Philippians and unpacking for us some crucial keys, some crucial steps to spiritual growth. And in that section, Paul really gave kind of an inside look into his own life as to what that growth process looked like. And now he's starting to turn to wrap up his letter. And we see there in the, in the just the very first verse how much he loves and cares for the audience that he's writing to. He uses languages like my joy and my crown. I've honestly not referred to any of you like that, mainly my wife. (laughs) But it really demonstrates uh, how much he loves and cares for the people that he's writing to. 
And you can see his exhortation there at the end of verse 1. And that is what? To stand firm in the Lord. See, the spiritual growth process often happens in very uncomfortable situations. And you can count on the fact that you will be tempted to handle those situations in a variety of ways. You will not be tempted to handle them by standing firm in the Lord. That will not be a temptation that you face. Rather, that comes from a deliberate choice, an act of faith on our part. The Philippian church, even Paul himself, they were facing plenty of things that were a threat to their spiritual growth. Plenty of distractions, plenty of fears, plenty of trouble. All of these things that could easily entice them away from standing firm in the Lord. And he calls his attention to two areas of trouble in this text that I think can threaten spiritual growth. And I think there are things that we can easily resonate with. One of them is conflict. And the other is what I'm just going to call spiritual distraction that can come when troubles arise. Spiritual distraction and the anxiety that can often accompany that. Now, we got to be honest here. Paul covers a lot of ground in these nine verses. There can be multiple sermons alone just on the topics of conflict and fear and worry and anxiety. We're not going to be able to say everything that could be said about those things, but I think Paul gives us some very rich instruction to help us stand firm in the Lord when these different kinds of trouble come into our lives. First thing, Lord willing, we're going to see is when conflict divides you, stand firm in Christ-like unity. When conflict divides you, stand firm in Christ-like unity. You see there in verse 2, I entreat Euodian, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now notice that Paul appeals to both women individually. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche. Both of them have a responsibility in pursuing the command, agree in the Lord. Now, we're not told what this disagreement was about. We don't know long, how long it had been going on. Paul simply doesn't mention it. But apparently, it, it was a disagreement that had escalated to the point that Paul... While in prison in Rome, even he had heard about this disagreement, this conflict, whatever it was. So it was significant enough that he felt it necessary to address the issue himself. How would you like to be, have your name in the New Testament for all of church history to see because you were in a conflict with someone? So he calls these ladies out. Now, what we do know is that these women were believers. We see there in verse 3, Paul says these are two women who, number one, have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, and who, number two, whose names are in the book of life. So Paul viewed these women as co-workers, as fellow laborers. They, and they labored in, with Paul in what? The gospel. They labored with Paul in the good news of the grace of God in Christ Jesus to restore sinners into a right relationship with himself. 
a relationship of grace, of unity, of peace. But now these two recipients of God's grace, these two messengers of God's grace, of God's grace are apparently having trouble showing that same grace to one another. Anybody ever struggle with that before? <laughs> like it's it's really easy to sing about rejoice in the grace of God that we have received. But man, when somebody sins against us, or if we disagree with them, it can be really hard to show that same grace. Yeah? Three of you, thank you for being honest. On one hand, isn't it encouraging to know that there were people in the New Testament that were just struggling to get along with each other? <laughs> I mean, that's encouraging, right? Now, because of how Paul briefly deals with it here, I think it's safe to say this was not a serious theological issue between them. So in other words, Yodia was not teaching heresy. Syntyche was not denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. She wasn't, she wasn't sharing some other form of the gospel. Because when those issues are going on, we know from... Paul's other letters, he deals with those issues quite drastically than what he deals with them here. So based upon his instruction to him, I think it's safe that we can conclude this was not an issue where Paul was taking sides. He was not calling out which one was in theological error. It was not an issue that called for removing one of them from the fellowship of the church. The bigger problem, I think, was that they had let their differences of opinion or belief escalate to the point where they had lost sight of the more important things that they had in common. They were standing firm in their own ways instead of standing firm in Christian unity. Do we not struggle with the exact same things? We can become so focused on differences in opinions, differences in personalities, differences in beliefs, how someone acted around us, how someone spoke to us. And when we don't biblically deal with those things quickly, it grows. It escalates. There's ripple effects to the point that whenever we're around them, we no longer see a fellow brother or sister. We don't see a fellow recipient of grace. We see an opponent. We see a nuisance. We see someone to avoid, just to be like, ah, I'll go sit on this side of the church. We become more entrenched in our point of view and how they are wrong. Now, please don't get me wrong here. There are definitely theological hills to die on. There are, without a doubt, theological issues that dictate whether we can be in fellowship with one another or not. But often, more times than not, we, we can't, to use the old phrase, we kind of make a mountain out of a molehill a lot of times. We, we let things blow way out of proportion. And not only did... Or so, so I think what he's calling them to is that they should demonstrate to one another the qualities that he described back in Philippians 2, 
1 through 4. But Because notice, he does not tell them to agree on the same conclusion. He tells them to what? Agree in the Lord. This is the same phrase that he used back in chapter 2 when he tells the believers to be of the same mind. So I think what he's calling them to is to demonstrate those qualities. You can go back and read them in, in verses 1 through 4 there. They needed to imitate their Savior having the selfless, sacrificial mind of Christ and put one another and the good of the church ahead of their own opinions. They needed to stand firm in Christ-like unity, not on their own preferences. But notice, not only did each individual woman have a responsibility in reconciliation, Paul calls others to help as well. Others have the responsibility to help. Friends, it takes other members of the family of God to preserve the unity of the body. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, we don't really know who this true companion is. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled over it. Commentators trying to figure it out. Could be an elder of the church But I think what we see just in this passage is consistent with the broader theme that we see in the New Testament, and that is we need fellow believers to help us follow Jesus, especially in moments of conflict. There's numerous verses we could look at. Galatians 6.1, for instance, Brothers, if if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Friends, when there's disunity, when there's division within our church family, we don't just get to turn a blind eye because, quote-unquote, it's none of our business. The unity of the body of Christ is the business of the entire body. And we are to handle it in grace, compassion, but standing firm on the truth. So what characterizes your relationships with people that you don't see eye to eye with? Is it marked by insisting on your own way? Is it marked by avoidance or harshness? Or is it characterized by mercy and charity and Christ-like love? Now, as we turn to In the next set of verses, 4 through 9, there aren't really any words in this text that explicitly connects 4 through 9 with 1 through 3. But being that he publicly called out two women to resolve their conflict, being that he called out other people to help them in their reconciliation, it kind of makes sense, at least in my mind, that he now calls their attention to these following uh, exhortations. Why is that? Because conflict is not fun. Helping others with conflict is not fun. And there's a good chance some of the people reading this letter were pretty distressed about what was going on especially if they were the ones called upon to help resolve the conflict. And so I think Paul now turns to help them 
settle their hearts and their minds. Point number two, when trouble surrounds you, stand firm in a God-centered focus. When trouble surrounds you, stand firm in a God-centered focus. You see, when, when trouble hits, when trouble surrounds us, it's common for things like grumbling, fear, anxiety. But Paul says whether you're sitting in prison, whether you're facing fierce opponents, whether you're living in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, or whether you're seeking to resolve conflict, all of those things are just in the book of Philippians alone, by the way. He said whether, whether you're in any of these things, God's people are to stay focused on him. Well, what does this look like? Verse 4, he begins, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, just as important as the command to rejoice is the frequency with which we are to do it. Paul says, always. This isn't some confusing theological term here. Always means all times, all situations. And possibly anticipating some objections from some people, Paul says, by the way, again, I say rejoice. Now surely I'm not the only one when reading this thinking to myself, is that really even possible? Right? Has anybody ever felt that before when reading that verse? But I think what can trip us up here is when we think about rejoicing from an emotional standpoint only. Paul is not saying a person should never feel down, never feel pain, never feel sorrow. He's not saying a Christian should always be happy with a smile on their face. Paul's not commanding us to produce some emotion. One pastor says, Joy is the deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory, and thus all is well no matter what the circumstances. Joy is a satisfaction in what God has done, in what he has promised. It's a satisfaction in his nearness to us, knowing that I've got him. It's enough. I can rejoice, I can praise, I can give thanks. See, we struggle to rejoice when we get hung up by focusing on our problems or on our feelings. But consider Paul. He, he's locked in prison. Where are you going to find joy, hope in that situation? The answer is it's not found in the situation. Joy is found in the one who is controlling the situation. That's what we are to rejoice in. Paul doesn't say rejoice in the circumstance, rejoice in the Lord. And then an important key, I think, to understanding how to rejoice in the Lord always can be found right back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, because Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, three important words, for 
I know. He rejoices because of what he knows to be true. His ability to rejoice was directly connected to what he knew to be true about God. This was his source of joy. This was his reason for rejoicing, his confidence. Friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, the same is true for you. You can rejoice always. Is it easy? No. But can it be done through the power of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely it can. Christians are to rejoice always because there is no circumstance that can snatch them from God's hand, separate them from God's love, or thwart God's purpose for their life. Listen to that again. Christians rejoice always because there is no circumstance that can snatch them from God's hand, separate them from God's love, or thwart God's purpose for their life. That's good news, amen? Verse 5, Paul continues, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, several commentators say this word translated to reasonableness. Uh, it actually carries very broad meaning, and it's more meaning actually than any one English word can convey. Uh, some translations you'll see the word gentleness. But a lot of commentators will say it, it conveys the ideas like generosity, charity, friendliness, graciousness, reasonableness. And when you consider the command in verse 4 to rejoice always, it makes sense why this would be <clears throat> Paul's next exhortation. Because if your joy, if your confidence, if your hope is connected to whatever your situation is, you are not going to be a very reasonable, gentle, or gracious person. If you let the chaos of the moment become the all-consuming center of your life, you can guarantee that freak-out mode will probably be activated at some point. Has anybody ever been there before? A couple years ago, <clears throat> Jack and Adelaide were swinging. Uh, Jack was sitting on Adelaide's lap. They fell out of the swing. Jack's face hit the ground. Adelaide's chin landed on the back of Jack's head and split it open pretty significantly. We took him to uh, the walk-in clinic, and uh, it, was, it was a pretty bad gash. So the doctor came in, and she told me, she goes, we're going to have to staple his head closed, and it would really help if you could hold him. And so I said, that, that's fine whatever we need to do. And so, as a dad, you hate to pin your kid down like that. I could feel the, the staples, like the vibration of them come down through his jawline. You're hearing him screaming. He's trying to fight and get away. Now think about it from his perspective. Searing pain. He wants relief. He wants out. He's trapped. 
No matter how hard he tries, no matter how loud he screams, no matter how much he squirms, he can't get away. But from daddy's perspective, from daddy's perspective, there's greater purpose behind the pain. There is future healing that will result because of the present pain that he's going through. And he's not trapped because he's being held by a daddy that loves him. He's being held tightly. And so I kept him there until the work was done. Friends, some of you probably feel like you're trapped. The pain seems unbearable. You're trying whatever you can to get away. You just want the pain to stop. You just want the suffering to stop. Anxiety is through the roof. You feel trapped. Reasonableness, gentleness, rejoicing, prayer, all those things are incomprehensible to you. But you need to realize where you feel like you are trapped, it just may be the loving arms of a heavenly father that's holding you there. He's holding you. Because he sees a bigger picture. He knows the purpose that he's working in the pain that you're presently experiencing. So focus on him. Don't take things into your own hands. Don't turn away. Turn to him. Embrace him. In trust, embrace him in obedience and submission to his word. A reasonable, gentle, gracious Christian is one who is actively focusing on and embracing a powerful, loving father in the midst of chaos and suffering. That's where reasonableness can come from. That's where gentleness can come from. Because that person who is focused, who has a God-centered focus, knows that the current chapter of their life is just one chapter. It's one chapter in a far greater story that God the Father is writing. Friend, if you're a Christian, chaos does not rule you. God does. Chaos and trouble does not rule you. This is why I love what he says next, verse 5, the end of verse 5 there. The Lord is at hand. This is the anchor for every Christian's life. The Lord is at hand. Christian, he is present. He is with you. He's holding you. He cares. And he's soon to return. I wonder what might your life look like if you could visibly see the Lord by your side at all moments? What might your actions 
be like? What might your words be like? If you could visibly see the Lord at your right hand, and if you knew at any moment he could come back. When conflict arises, when chaos, pain, suffering take over, we must remember the Lord is at hand. This is the ballast for our soul. Friend, God has not walked out of the room to leave you with suffering, to have its way with you. He's holding you. He has you. He is with you. He is at hand. And even better news, he's soon coming to take you home. He's going to take us out of here. So it makes sense, I think, why Paul says next, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. Now, Philippians 4 is widely known as one of the main passages on anxiety. But unfortunately, these five words often get plucked out of the surrounding context. And Paul's command can often get used in a just stop it kind of way. I think you know what I'm talking about. Paul says, don't be anxious. You're being anxious, so stop it. As if that's helpful (laughs) at all. It's like, okay, let me turn off the anxious switch. I mean, how often have we heard these words, don't be anxious about anything, detached from the surrounding verses? How often have we heard that command detached from even the first words in front of it? The Lord is at hand. But there's much more going on here than Paul telling us to stop something. He's giving us a better response based upon what truth? The Lord is at hand. So instead of being anxious, talk to the Lord. Talk to the Lord who is at hand. You see, without the surrounding exhortations, don't be anxious for anything seems impossible, does it not? If you just pluck those words out, and that's what somebody told you, it would seem absolutely impossible. But the reality of the surrounding verses is what supports the command. It's not don't be anxious because there's not anything scary or frightening. Friends, there is plenty to be scared of in this world, yeah? There is plenty that is frightening. There's plenty to be worried about. Life can be filled with frightening things. This is one of the reasons so many people struggle with anxiety. But for the Christian, it's not just me at the mercy of whatever situation I'm facing. It's me and the Lord who's at my right hand. It's me and the Lord who is risen, who is reigning, and who has more power than I could ever imagine. Now, again, there, there is so much that could be said on anxiety, but this isn't a sermon solely on anxiety, so we can't spend a ton of time here, but I, w- I want you to at least think about this for a minute. Why do we get anxious? Why do we worry? At the core, it's because something may happen that we don't want to happen, 
or something may not happen that we do want to happen. We're anxious. We're wor- we worry because there's potential for circumstances to not go the way that we want them to go. How many of you recognize there is a very high chance that things will not go the way that you want them to go in almost every area of life? Yeah? But the Christian realizes all of these cares, all of these anxieties fall under a loving, powerful God who controls all things for his glory and for our good. So to continually be anxious, to continually be filled with worry, we've got to be honest, is to doubt who God is and what he has promised. For a Christian to continually be marked by anxiety and worry is a Christian who may profess, yes, I believe the God in the Bible, but they're living in ways that's saying, uh, I, I actually don't know if he is who he says he is. I'm actually not quite sure if he's going to do what he promises. But instead, when a Christian faces what is frightening in the world, when we, give, when we begin to feel anxiety and worry build in our hearts, Paul says you're to immediately run to the Lord who is at hand. Verse 6, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So instead of being anxious about anything, God calls us to talk to him about what? Everything. How much does God care about what you are going through? Well, he cares so much that he wants you to talk to him about everything. Everything. And you'll notice three words here, prayer, supplication, requests. All of these conveying the idea that God wants us to bring specific requests before him in prayer. So you can think of it this way. Every time anxiety or worry hits, you can recognize it kind of like a check engine light in your heart that it's time to pray. It's time to pray. It's time to talk to the Lord who is at hand instead of anxiously rehearsing thoughts, questions, and fears over and over and over and over again. And while we pray and while we ask, we are to do what? Paul says, give thanks with thanksgiving. Friend, is your prayer mixed with thanksgiving even when pain and suffering hits? How long has it been since you've asked yourself, what can I thank God for today? How long has it been since you've asked yourself, where have I seen his faithfulness at work? Where have I seen his mercy in my life? I guarantee you the fact that you're sitting here proves it's there. It's there. But are we seeking to recognize it? Are we seeking to give thanks? What truth about God can you give thanks for in this very moment, in this situation that you're experiencing? Now notice in verse 7, this is the one thing out of all these exhortations 
that we are not responsible for. And that's because verse 7 is a promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God promises something our anxiety and worry could never produce. His peace. His peace. Peace that is unexplainable. It transcends anything we could imagine, comprehend, or understand. I love what one commentator said. He said, God's peace transcends our intellectual powers precisely because believers experience it when it is unexpected and in circumstances that make it appear impossible. It's an inner peace, an assurance that we so desperately long for but could never produce on our own. And friends, it's not found in things turning out the way we want them to. It's not found in things turning around for our favor. Rather, where is it found? In rejoicing, being reasonable, praying in everything, giving thanks. It's found in focusing, continually focusing on the one who controls all things. So just as a child senses security and peace when they draw close to mommy and daddy when a bad storm is raging outside, so God can minister peace to our hearts as we are faithful to obey his word. The, the, the word that Paul uses there for guard, it's actually kind of like a military term. So he's actually saying God's peace will guard our hearts from worry and anxiety like an army would guard their own country. But we don't have to worry about our guard being overthrown. Because <laughs> our, our peace comes from God himself. Friends, I, I hope you see this passage is so much more than don't feel this way. I hope you see that. Because if we approach the text in this manner, if we pluck that command, do not be anxious, out of the surrounding context, we miss the relational and conversational image that I think Paul is painting here for us. Listen to this quote from a counselor that I follow. Paul is reminding us that even amid troubling circumstances, staying conversationally connected with God stabilizes our emotions and reminds, reminds us of the good story of which this dark chapter is just a part. Staying conversationally connected with God. So I hope you see this is not, this is not a push the right button, pray the right prayer, God plops peace into our soul and then we go back off doing our own thing. Rather, this is a peace of God that is experienced, that's applied to our souls over time as we day in, day out, draw close, focus on the God of peace.
And how do we do that? Rejoicing, being reasonable, giving thanks, praying. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, just because Paul lists this last doesn't mean that we don't start to be intentional in our thinking until after we've done all the other stuff, (laughs) right? In verses 4 through 7 there. Rather, this is something that we're continually striving for in, in all the things that we've already discussed this morning. Because there, there's intentional thinking in, involved in pursuing unity. There's intentional thinking involved in resolving conflicts. There's intentional thinking involved in rejoicing always, in being reasonable, in not being anxious, in praying and everything. And it is intentional thinking. Paul isn't just saying, hey, by the way, keep these things in mind. Rather, he's saying, keep your mind focused on these things. So in other words, it's something we've got to practice. We have to be intentional about. When I was holding Jack, if I was focused on solely on the screams on him trying to get away it would have been much easier to be like you know what we can't do this we need to find another way but what was required in that moment was trusting what the doctor had said this is what's best for him this is what's going to help and it's the same way in the Christian life That's how we stand firm. It's not that we deny what we're going through. But you know what? A lot of times we'll speak truth about what we're going through, about how hard it is, how unjust it is, how painful it is. But so often that's where we stop. When I think we ought to also ask ourselves, what else do I know to be true? Okay, yeah, these things are true about this situation, but what else do I know to be true? I think this is what you see in Paul all throughout the New Testament. You even see this in Jesus in the garden. In his darkest hour, Mark describes him as very sorrowful even to the point of death. Do we often think about Jesus in those kind of dark terms? I don't think we do. But Jesus, when he falls on his face, he starts with what he knows to be true. He calls calls God Father. Father. He remembers the relationship that he has. He also says, I know all things are possible for you. It's what he knows to be true. But notice he also doesn't deny the truth of his situation. He doesn't deny what he's feeling. He says, if possible, would you take this from me? He's specific in his requests. But what else does he do? Ultimately, it's not my will. It's yours. He's thinking rightly about, you know what, this isn't about me, ultimately. It's about 
doing the will of the Father. Friends, Jesus blazed this trail for us himself, and he will give you the grace that you need to do the same thing. So Paul, here in verse 8, this is, again, this is more than saying, just stop thinking that way. Rather, he's commanding us to replace our anxious, incomplete thinking with truth, with things that fit into the categories that he lists here. And these, these are all categories, first of all, we need to recognize that must be defined by the Bible. We are not free to define whatever's true, whatever's just, whatever's lovely. The Bible must define those things. And this list is kind of like, I think maybe you can think of it this way, a filter, if you will, to help us take captive any thought that should not be occupying our minds. And in case any of us doubt the effectiveness of what Paul is talking about, notice what he says, verse 9, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, and what you have seen in me. Practice these things. In other words, he's saying, friends, I know what it's like to be in scary situations. You're not alone in your battle against fear and anxiety. I know what it's like to suffer immensely, and I know what it's like to experience the peace of God in the middle of it all. Next week, what he's going to say is this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So take what you've learned Take what you've received, heard, and seen in me, and do what? Practice. Practice these things. And here's the promise again, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, do you want peace that only God can give? Then draw near to him intentionally focus on him. He can give it. I guarantee it. We have have evidences of even, my goodness, that we could talk about hymns all day long of how this is demonstrated in hymns. Here's one of them. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well. It is well with my soul. You realize the guy who wrote that, wrote that shortly after passing the area in the middle of the ocean where his ship, the ship that his four daughters were on, went down. He lost all of his his daughters. His wife alone survived. As soon as he heard the news, he left to go meet his wife in Europe. And as they were passing over that place in the ocean, the captain told him, this is where the ship went down. And it was shortly after that he wrote those words. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, as we wrap up this morning, I want to ask, what's troubling you? What's tempting to draw your focus 
away from God. Are you giving thanks? Are you being specific in your prayers? Are you rejoicing in the middle of your situation? You're not going to be perfect. If you could be perfect in this, Jesus would have never had to come. He did come, and he was perfect. And that's where our hope lies. That's, where we're, that's why we keep going. Because he's, he's regarded my helpless estate. He shed his own blood for my soul. So Paul says, he's going to complete the work that he started in you. He's not left you in your situation. Maybe another question you can ask is, who is a, who's a faithful companion that you can reach out to? Paul called upon some companions to help those two ladies in the church. Who's a faithful companion here that you need to reach out to today? Let's pray. God, this, this text is so rich. So many things that could be said. So much hope and truth that we could turn our hearts and our minds to. God, you know where each and every heart is this morning, and you know the exact way, the exact truth, the exact amount of grace that's needed to minister to every heart in attendance here this morning. So I pray, God, by your grace, would you do that even now? God, would you help us to rejoice always? Would you help us not to be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make our requests known to you? Would you help us to renew our minds with your word? Would you help us to see life from your perspective? Would you help us to view our situations through the lens of your promises? Would you help us to cast ourselves before you and follow in our Savior's footsteps who said, it's not my will, it's yours. God, help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.